So, deserving listeners, a lot of you will email me and ask to talk about behavior therapy or their offspring. And today, I have a special guest on the show to talk about behavior therapy, Elizabeth Connis. She's a – is that how I pronounce your name, Elizabeth? Yeah. She is a an expert. She's a therapist and a practitioner of – what do you call it? Applied applied behavior analysis. Usually Appli- it's not behavioral. Applied behavior analysis. And Elizabeth is a patron of the podcast. And we, we've been communicating for past couple years at least, right? On, on email occasionally. Yeah. So I, I, I'm really excited to talk with you finally and to pick your brain about applied behavior analysis. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Elizabeth, who are you? How how would you like to introduce yourself to the rest of the deserving listeners? My name's Elizabeth Connis. I'm a BCABA, which means I'm a board-certified assistant behavior analyst. I'm in school for my BCBA, which means I'm in school for my board's to become a board-certified behavior analyst, which means it was basically, basically will mean that I can work independently. Right now, I work under a supervisor. So what is applied behavior therapy in a nutshell? Okay. In a nutshell, it's actually not therapy per se. It's actually a science, and it's It's based on the principles of learning that says that our behavior is governed by the the consequences that follow our behavior. So we – I lost my train of thought. This is going great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I work with kids on the autism spectrum. My job, essentially, in a nutshell – is to figure out the function of their behavior. And then we use the function of their behavior to figure out the the appropriate antecedents or consequences based on the function of the behavior. For example, if you have a child um, with autism, usually a child with autism, although this, this definitely works with my own neurotypical daughter just as well. If this child is hitting their mother, say, we won't look at that and say that this child is hitting their mother because they're bad or because they're angry or because they're sad. We'll look at it and we'll say, why are they doing this? And we'll look at the function of the behavior. So are they doing it for attention? Do they not have the skills that they need to appropriately ask for that attention? So instead of hitting mom, they could say, excuse me, mom, or um, even just tap her on the arm. Um, Are they doing it to get out of something? So do they know that if they hit their mom, they, they can escape some tasks. So instead of mom dealing with them in that moment, mom will say, go to your room. And so they'll be able to escape some aversive tasks that they're trying to escape. Are they doing it because it feels good to them? They might just um, just want to hit mom because it feels good to them, that the impact or um, just that sensation. It's, it's the same as if when a lot of the times, not always, but sometimes um, kids with autism will like flap their hands or engage in other self-stimulatory behaviors because it just feels good to them? Or are they doing it, the, the fourth function of behavior is access. So this is, it's basically saying, are they doing it to receive access to something? So do they know that if they hit mom, mom's going to give them some candy to calm down? So instead of looking at the more mentalistic reasons for behavior, we look at what function the behavior is serving. What's the distinction between mentalistic explanations and what you're talking about? 
So a mentalistic explanation is focused more on emotion. We do factor in emotions and that's where like acceptance and commitment therapy and those types of disciplines come into play. But we don't really, it sounds terrible, but we don't really focus too much on emotion. So if a kid is crying, I will rarely, unless it's my own kid, because that's, it's just different. Um, <laughs> I will rarely look at that child and say, oh, he's sad. What, sh- what can we do? Because Johnny is sad. I'll look at him and, and look at the environment and figure out why he's crying. Um, you can usually, I've gotten very good at telling you how, why a kid is crying, um, which some, might sound odd, but you can, you can just, after a while, you can just train yourself to look at the environment and see, is he crying? And is he looking up at mom at the same time. Well, then he's probably doing it for attention. So let's give him an alternative. It's called a functional alternative response to ask for that attention. Or is he, is he crying and he is like pushing away, uh, you know, his homework or something like that. Well, then he's probably doing it to get out of something. So then we can give him the skills. We're not looking to make him just stop crying just because we don't want him to cry, but we're looking to at his behavior and trying to figure out how to give him better skills so he doesn't have to cry in the future. Obviously, though, if, you know, if a kid just lost their dog or something, it's different. And we don't always look at the function of the behavior. But usually um, in the context of my work with kids on the autism spectrum, you can usually use this method to figure out why they're, they're behaving the way they are. And are you currently working with clients at an internship or something? Uh, yeah, I'm being supervised by, I actually told my supervisor that I would do a little shout out to her. Her name's Angela Cooper. Um, she's awesome. <laughs> um, so I'm being supervised for a practicum. I, I do a practicum through my school. It's, so it's a bit more intensive because it's through my school versus just independent field work. About how many clients do you see a week? I actually don't see clients on a one-on-one basis so much anymore. Sometimes I'll fill in for other therapists, but I actually supervise other cases. I think I have between eight to 10 cases currently. Um, so what I do is I go and I observe the therapist working with the child and try to make sure that they have all the data because our field is based on data. So I make sure that they have the data sheets they need, that they if they have any questions for me in my, in my field, um, to be a behavior therapist, just to have that title, you actually only need a high school diploma. So a lot of the times you can potentially get a therapist that's new to the field and they might need more training than somebody that, um, that has like me, that's been in the field for years. So that, I think that's interesting too. So if you ever meet somebody that's a behavior therapist, you you want to ask them more because you only need a high school diploma for most agencies to be become a behavior therapist. Well, they're not licensed. They're just that's just their title at at the agency. Is that is yeah. That right? yeah? Yeah, it's not like a protected title or anything like that. So you work with these non masters level people with regards to coaching them on how to. Uh, reach the goals that are set forth by the parents, I'm guessing? So we'll do the the BCBA on the case or the BCABA on the case. We'll conduct an assessment. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, like the Vineland. So like, for example, the VB map, I actually have it coincidentally in front of me. Um, It's a language and social skills assessment program, and it looks at things 
things such as to determine the objective of this goal is to determine if a child mans for 10 different reinforcers without echoic prompts and for a child using signs or selecting pictures mans without imitative or pointing prompts respectively so that's the word mans means asks so this goal is to see if a child can ask use their verbal language or PECS, which is a picture exchange communication system to ask for um, some reinforcers so if johnny needs some water or he wants some juice can he ask for that without any sort of prompts trying to get him to emit that skill. So um, what will happen is a BCBA um, or the BCABA will come in and they'll do this assessment. And then the assessment will um, determine the deficits of the child. And then the BCBA will work with the parents or the caregivers and they'll determine if what is socially significant. Because what's important to um, recognize, and this is a big this is a big deal nowadays because sometimes applied behavior analysis gets a bad rap. Um, and the reason it gets a bad rap is because a lot of people think that we just go in and and we'll just change behavior just for the sake of changing behavior. So, um, for example, I I had a client in the past that um, I think they were four or five years old and they still drank from a bottle. And we talked to the parents about it and we were like, you know, obviously this is a deficit. Do you, um, a four to five year old doesn't usually drink out of a bottle. Is this something that you want to work on? And they said, no. So we're like, okay, that's great. Like we don't need to work on it. So we'll only focus on those behaviors that are important to the client. If they're old enough or, um, functioning at a functioning level enough to, um, make that, make that decision or parents. So, um, a lot, and it's across many domains. So it'll be across self care, um, communication, pretty much anything you could think of. We can teach as long as a deficit is obvious, because this is of course all connected to health insurance as well. So a lot of the times health insurance wants to see specific goals depending on the, the carrier. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So you work collaboratively with the families regarding setting up specific behaviors that would they would like to be altered, and then you develop a plan about how to, you know, given the assessment and maybe why this behavior is persisting. And, um, you know, I'm guessing because I've done this kind of work, but I never called it applied behavior analysis. I just we back in the day in the 90s we would have called it behavior modification, or we just would have called it family therapy in some ways. And so I can tell you from experience that uh, it's wonderful when it works out, and it's it's complicated. You know, it uh, people uh, takes a lot of time to to uh, change a behavior to, uh, especially when the individual the child. It has a lot of things that get in the way of them learning new behaviors and that sort of thing. So I commend you for, for your work. Um, so, so you guys will assess the situation and then you, you primarily coach others to implement the plan. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. So, um, from the assessment, we'll we'll have an entire um, report written up from the assessment, and then from there we'll write things that that my company calls programs. So then the programs will um, be broken down. So a um, somebody that with not I don't want to say limited education, but somebody that potentially only has a high school diploma, they can implement these programs. Um, so for example, it could be something like um, getting a child 
I'll just go back to the example of getting a child to ask for a cookie if they want a cookie. So right now, let's say this child would just kind of hit mom or they'll just go to the kitchen and they'll just kind of scream or, or display some other sort of maladaptive behavior in order to get what they want. So what we would do is we would, since the function of their behavior is access, we would kind of give them the tools to be able to to use either a picture, the PEC system, which is picture exchange communication system, or their vocal verbal language if they're able to do that, and then give them the tools to ask for those things once we have identified that they're motivated for a cookie. So we might, you know, take them outside and play with them for 20 minutes and then bring them inside and they want a snack. And so instead of allowing them to have the opportunity to engage in those maladaptive behaviors, we'll give them the words to say, cookie, please, or mom, can I have a cookie or whatever the, whatever the phrase that that is appropriate for whatever level they're at. Because if, if you have a, a child that has no vocal language, you wouldn't have them speaking in complete sentences. You might just have them say the k sound for cookie. So it, it's all individualized to where the child is at, and then it's adjusted as they go. So we engage in a, in a process called shaping. At first, if that child is only saying the k sound for cookie, and they do that for, say, I don't know, three, four weeks, after a while, they'll take that, we'll take that behavior, and then we'll require a bit more in order to shape that behavior into a more universal, universally understood response. So we'll, we'll take that cut sound and hopefully shape it into, can I have a cookie, please? Right. Yeah, exactly. It's small steps toward the overall goal. And of, and of course, the, the goal isn't just that they know how to ask for a cookie, but that they can use their uh, verbal language for all sorts of things, not just asking for a cookie, but... Uh, being right. able, being able to communicate um, all sorts of you know all the glorious things that humans communicate about, <laughs> right? So shaping and small steps and planning and rewarding the behavior that you're um, you know setting out as like the incremental step toward the eventual thing, being realistic, trying to uh, sell it to the individual, <laughs> you know, being diplomatic with the person. You know, I'm I'm guessing your behavior therapists are very good with kids and very good with autistic people. Yeah. Um, a lot of the times it's, it's kind of amazing how they're, they're so able and willing to work with a child with autism, especially I was at a case yesterday and the child, um, when we walked into the room, he, he knew that this therapist is associated with some sort of work for him. So he knew that he would be required to do work, which is basically just playing, but it's, to him, it's it's not playing on his iPad, so it's work. So he just screamed and screamed and screamed. And what we did is we just ignored him until he was able to calm himself down. And we gave him, we, we pointed to um, like this board where it, it kind of cues him or prompts him to um, engage in an appropriate response. So we, we were pointing to a picture of a mouth and saying, quiet mouth first, and then we can play, quiet mouth first, and then we can play. And then um, we just kind of waited them out since we knew that he was doing it for attention. We just kind of waited until he was able to calm himself down and engage in a functional alternative response, and then we engaged with him. And the parents are there as well? Yes. Yeah, the parents are always required to be there. And you're trying to manage them as well because they could engage in a plan that wasn't 
along those lines, right? Yeah. So sometimes you get parents that, and and that's why after a while, this particular family I'm talking about, they only had a certain amount of hours of therapy per week. And then the family kind of bought into the, to the idea of ABA quicker. And now they're, they're asking for even more hours because they see the improvement in, in a short amount of time. So sometimes you get those parents that have bought into it and they understand that um, it's for the good of their child and, and we're, we're teaching them skills and we're teaching them alternative ways of communicating and, and existing in the world and, and like all the, all that great stuff to, so they're able to um, just exist and, and be okay with their peers and such. Um, and then other times you'll have parents that might have a harder time understanding that, you know, we're ignoring him because we don't want to reinforce his behavior. So it might be harder for some parents to um, listen to their son or daughter cry if we're just if we're just ignoring them and not giving them the attention that they're looking for or, so, or something like that. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, any parent of any child will be able to relate to this. Every every parent does a version of this, whether they know they're talking about it or not. Right. Yes. Oh, for sure. Um, a lot of times if let's say you go into um, you go into the store and your child is asking for a candy bar and then they're screaming and they, they actually engage in something called an extinction burst where it gets worse and worse and worse and they're screaming and they're crying and they're kicking and they're making a scene. And if you just ignore them, then you're actually doing applied behavior analysis because you're you looked at the function of that behavior and you determine that they're just looking to access something, which is that candy bar. And then if you ignore that behavior and, and recognize that that's the function of, of why they're doing that, and eventually you know that if you once you walk away from that candy bar aisle, um, the behavior will stop and it usually does. Um, be, and you've basically engaged in applied behavior analysis without knowing it. Right. And the impulse is either to react to placate, which of course rewards the behavior you're not hoping to perpetuate, or to react in a punitive, angry manner, which causes other complications down the line um, and may even be kind of a reward to the child in that they're getting your attention or they feel powerful or they're getting a reaction or something like that. Is that, is that right? Yeah, because our field believes that um, pretty much any attention can potentially positively reinforce a behavior. So even if, if this child is, let's say they're engaging in this behavior, but they're doing it for attention and you just kind of glance their way, that could be enough to reinforce that behavior, which means that it'll increase in the future. Do you help with emotional regulation at all? Yeah. Yeah, we um, I was actually just thinking to myself that it's important to note that we don't just deal with little kids that can't talk. Um, like, for example, I have a 14 year old client right now and we're working on social skills with him. Um, like we're teaching him sarcasm and how to recognize sarcasm and how to appropriately respond to it. So those types of social skills or emotional regulation, there's something called the zones of regulation. I'm not too familiar with it. But I know it's a way to give them that functional, um, a functional alternative response to respond to their emotions or, or whatever the antecedent was to their emotional display. It sounds like maybe with some of the clients, you're actually working with them and they know what's happening. They, they're, uh, you're saying, would you like to work on this skill today? So it's not always something that's happening 
to them, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Some of your clients, you're coaching them and they want to be coached. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the 14 year old knows that we come in and, and we just are like, we're here to help you. We're here to, um, he's got some other social deficits. So we're working on these um, so he's able to like hold a conversation and make eye contact and that type of thing. That way he's less alienated in his classroom environment. But yeah, he's totally is aware that we're there to help him. Um, I don't know. He might kind of think of it as being a, a form of counseling to him, but we are, we're not counseling. We, we definitely are distinct from that. And you're trying to in the moment, are you trying to actually reward behavior in the moment or are you coaching him on how he can develop habits? I, I would say it's both. It's a lot of like play, not play scenarios, but a lot of... Um, let's play a game. Yeah, like let's play a game and let's let's pretend that we're having a conversation. Let's pretend we're at a baseball game yeah. and your friend just took your your snack and he didn't ask for like, what would you do in that situation? And it's a oh, role playing. That's the word I'm looking for. It's a lot of role playing. The, the biggest thing, and I can't believe I haven't mentioned this yet, but the biggest thing about our field is that we use the principles of positive reinforcement. So we would then positively reinforce him in that moment um, when we're role playing. And then what we would do is we would take the skills learned in this more distilled environment. So if, if it's just the therapist and the client, they obviously, it's not the same as if you're in a lunchroom at school and everything's crazy and you're trying to have conversation with your friend. So we'll take the skills learned in this more distilled environment and we'll do something called um, generalize it to other settings and other people and other um, environments. That way we know that not only can Johnny have a good conversation with his therapist, but he can also talk to peers his age or mom, or he'll ask dad how his day was and maintain eye contact and that type of thing. So it's, it's important to, to also recognize that we don't just do the skills and, and learn the skills and teach the skills in the, these environments. We make sure that they can do them in other environments as well. So let me ask you, Elizabeth, have you found that some people have, you, you mentioned it a little bit, but have you found that people have a stigma around your field? Yeah. Um, most of the time it's not in my everyday life. It's more so on the internet. <laughs> um, so there's been a lot of articles written kind of recently that say that ABA is abusive. Some parents, um, I think there's an entire autism society of some sort. I'm not too familiar with it, but I think there's a, there's a, an organization that's very anti-ABA because they say that it, um, makes children like robotic and, um, they don't respond. They don't, it's not a a appropriate way to respond to children. And, and I totally get that. And I get how it looks, how it can seem and look that way, but really it's important to note that we're working on um, socially significant behaviors, and these are all things that we've worked, we've put past the parents and made sure the parents are on board. Basically, the entire job of the behavior therapist is to find ways to reinforce the child throughout the session. So that might include ignoring a maladaptive behavior, but it, it also includes, you know, um, giving them a hug or a high five or something like that when they do something correctly or Honestly, I'm not, I don't go to a lot of therapy sessions that aren't like the happiest moments ever when a child can, you know, tie their shoes for the first time or they can, you know, like 
vocalize what they need instead of saying wa they say water or something like that it's it's a really positive experience for me and for i hope hopefully for the, our clients that we serve and um there's a lot of research out there that shows that the earlier and the more therapy you get a child um with autism at an early age the better off they will be long term so um that early intervention is so important so i try to while i try to ignore for the most part, those negative opinions, I do think it's also important to recognize them and to understand where they're coming from because I understand why behaviorism can look cruel or it can look robotic. I, I think it's also important to mention that kind of like you, what you were saying, where you can use positive reinforcement in your everyday life. So this ABA, and that's, I kind of chuckle because like ABA, whether you like it or not, is there in your everyday life um, almost constantly. Like, in regards to couples, I'm sure you've heard of the Gottman study where it's a the magic ratio is a five to one where for every one insult or negative comment you say to your partner, you should you have to make up for it by saying five positive things. So it's definitely there and it's definitely prevalent in our everyday lives. We just don't always know it. Yeah, I, th- I think if I might speculate based on my 20 years in the field and just hearing different people talk i i think that behaviorism gets a bad rap because of one the history i mean i i don't know if your program talks about the history but there there were huge fights in the 60s and 70s and 80s around all this stuff people were on on every side were being very nasty researchers were being very nasty to each other and calling each other you know the Behaviorists would call the cognitivists stupid, and they don't know what they're talking about. And the cognitivists would call the psychoanalysts stupid, and the psychoanalysts would call the behaviorists stupid. And it, it was, it was really quite nasty. And and we still have those kind of legacies. Uh, it's changing, but it's still around uh, in full force in in a lot of ways. So so there's that. And then I think the other thing is, whenever you're working with special needs kids. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety. There, it, it's it's really painful to watch children struggle in any way, even if even if they're not special needs, even if they're not autistic. It it's where we care and we have compassion, and when we see people struggling, it it breaks our heart. And when you have a, a kid who is having a lot of struggles. And having a lot of pain around the fact that they're they can't talk yet, or they don't know what to do, and they you know they're they have a lot of frustration, and the parents and the families are going through a lot of stress. If a particular therapy or a particular clinician doesn't manage to uh, be successful, which can happen sometimes for one reason or another, then I think it's natural to blame the clinician or to blame the field or something rather than saying like well maybe it wasn't the best clinician or maybe this is a you know a very difficult situation or maybe we need a little bit more time or maybe we should come at this from a different angle and instead what people do because there's just so much tension and so much pain around this is they'll i'm guessing write an article on the internet that blames the entire field uh, as as if the field is the problem. You know what I mean? Do, do you think yeah. that's possible? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I The article that I'm thinking of, it's, it's from a former ABA therapist, and she claims that um, what she was made to do as an ABA therapist was abusive towards a child, but it doesn't, it, that type of viewpoint, while I respect it, and I understand that her perception is is, you know, the truth in some ways, like if you perceive something to be true, then that's true, is is what I believe. So I think that it ignores the good that we do and taking into account the social significance of the behaviors that we try to change. And I think it, t- it kind of ignores all the evidence that shows that ABA therapy is really effective for kids with autism. And, the, and there's a form, I don't know if you know of uh, parent-child interaction therapy. Have you heard of such a thing? No. It's, it's, it's um, a form of uh, therapy in which it's called PCIT in, in short. And you take parents who are struggling with their kids and you bring them into a lab and you put them in a room with a one-way mirror and you give them either like an earpiece or you enter the room with them. And as the therapist, the PCIT therapist, you ignore everything that isn't going well with the parent and but whenever the parent does something that you deem to be a helpful behavior uh, such as rewarding good behavior in their children you reward the parent so you you say oh great that seemed to be like a very functional way to do that right there good job um you know jennifer or whatever and it's sort of this trickle down reward culture <laughs> you 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 don't criticize the parent you don't you don't say the parent did anything bad you don't you just you just let those things go but whenever you see something positive however small you reward it verbally and then over time these habits form and you you engage in this for 10 to 12 uh 10 to 20 weeks or something like that and um and it's very effective for, for parents to, to cause a lot of parenting changing therapies have to do with teaching skills or advising, but that doesn't necessarily change their actual behavior. Um, but PCIT has been shown to, to be very, very helpful as, as you might imagine. Yeah. I'm surprised I haven't heard of that before. I just, I just looked it up on Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't heard of this before. It does sound like it would be effective. Well, have have I not asked you about something you want to tell me about, Elizabeth? So I was going to say something about prompting, um, though. Like, do you know? Do you know what? Like, if I said like a vocal prompt or a visual prompt, or do you know what I mean by that? Nope. I mean, I okay. can take a guess, but okay. Yeah, it's 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 a way that we use to teach kids like important skills like they might we might be teaching a child how to like brush their teeth um and so we'll use um full physical prompting so we'll basically put our hand over their hand and brush the te- their teeth for them um and show them how to how to do it so we'll use this it's a very specific prompting system it's it varies from company to company but um there's different forms of prompting like vocal prompts so we might say brush your teeth or don't forget the back of your teeth or or something like that um in order to vocally prompt them through a a behavior um so i wanted to mention that because it's important that 
we in, in like the criticism of ABA part of it is that we it doesn't allow kids to be independent. It doesn't it teaches them these skills, but it, it forces them to become dependent on maybe prompts or it doesn't teach them to be themselves, basically, I think is some of the criticism that's out there. Um, but we use these prompts in a very specific way so that we, we can eventually fade them out. Um, so you might go from a full physical prompt, which is like, so you basically hold their hand over the toothbrush and brush their teeth for them. And then you might kind of lightly touch their hand while they're brushing their teeth to guide them. And then you might take that away and you might just gesture to their mouth so they don't forget a part of their mouth or something like that. So, um, I just wanted to mention that as another way that we, um, gradually kind of take ourselves out of the picture at, is, is by using prompts, a prompting system. Yeah. That's interesting. I, and I could imagine that for some situations uh, that could go awry if the clinician or whoever is doing the prompting is having some kind of counter-transference and getting frustrated. I could see that um, uh, becoming not as, as helpful as it would be otherwise. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, and I have to say, it's very interesting to hear you talk about it because everything you say, you're talking about it through the lens of somebody that de- I'm assuming deals with like more mentalistic approaches to um, human behavior and stuff, like, which is totally fine. Um, but it's just interesting to hear, um, like we would never say countertransference. We would just say frustration or something like that. Even if, I don't even know if we would say that because we usually don't bring up emotion or 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 anything like that, but it's just interesting to hear you um, talk about it. But don't people get frustrated? Don't therapists? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure, but we wouldn't call it counter-transference. We, we um, yeah, yeah, but, but what, say, and what, but what do you do with that frustration? I mean, like, uh, how do you, how do you, because I'm guessing the frustration would uh, interfere with the, with the prompting. You know, you're, you're trying to, Help a child. I mean, because this is from personal experience. I, I haven't done these sorts of things specifically, but you're you show up to work eight hours a day. You go to the home. You know, you're going to four different homes that day or something, and it's time to brush the teeth. And the kid is like, "I don't want to." And you know, and you go back to the board, and you're saying, you know, when you're quiet, you know, when you have quiet mouth, we can move to the next phase. And and it's it's tiresome, you know. You, you get yeah. tired, and then, okay, bring him into the bathroom, and okay, it's time to do the prompting of the you know toothbrush. I don't know exactly you know how you do it, but you get the toothbrush, you put it in the hand. The the I, I've been punched by an autistic kid in these situations. <laughs> they they'll, yeah. they'll turn around and punch you in the face and hard, and and sometimes they're they're bigger. And don't know their own, or maybe they do know their own strength, but they can do damage. And and then that, you know, is obviously going to create an emotional reaction in the clinician. And then I'm going to be frustrated and I'm going to be a little bit, I, I'm going to, if I don't watch it, I'm going to lose my temper, you know, and I'm going to uh, become more forceful in my approach or, I don't know, just, just not regulated, not balanced. And so... How do you guys deal with that? Um, honestly, and this isn't really the answer you're looking for, but honestly, there's a lot of burnout in the field um, and a lot of turnover in the field because of this. Um, they, 
the education requirements aren't that high. So it's not, it's not usually a job that's paid pretty well. Um, so there's a lot of turnover and a lot of burnout in the field. You have to be somebody, if you want to work in this field, you have to be somebody that's very passionate about it. Um, because in that instance, what I, what I would do is, um, I would just kind of trudge through it. You just kind of, you ignore it. Um, after a while, if, if you worked in the field for a while, you, you, you learn very quickly not to take things personally. Um, and I'm not saying you guys would or anything like that, but it's, it's just a matter of putting it, basically putting it aside, but burnout and turnover and, um, those sorts of things are really prevalent in our field because of, and, and that's something that is, is very well known about our field. Um, I think it's a combination of like, the education requirements, um, low pay, and then it's, it's just a tough job. It's, yeah. it's really tough. Cause like you're saying you get punched. I've been bit, I've been kicked and hit, uh, you know, you name it, <laughs> it's happened to me and, it's, and you just kind of trudge through it. And it's, it's, I, I imagine it'd be the same as if you were a daycare worker or you, um, were a teacher or something like that. You, you deal with it in the same ways that, that those types of professions would. Yeah, I learned behaviorism early in my life because I had a my mom had a daycare in my house and I would observe droves of kids come through the door for years in various different stages of behavioral change and a kid would enter the you know would begin daycare would you know a parent would sign up their kid for my mom's daycare and the kid would come in with defiance and like temper tantrums and problematic behavior and harming other kids. And I would passively, I wouldn't, I wasn't purposely watching my mom, but our house wasn't that big. So I couldn't really avoid watching my mom. And I would observe my mom passively over time do exactly what you guys do. And she would just slowly and you know, shape their behavior. I don't know if she saw it that way, but, and she was extremely effective at it. And she still is, honestly, she's very effective at, at that sort of thing. And then I would see the parents show up and everything would fall apart because the parents would have this whole other scheme, shall we say, of reward and the kid would respond differently to them. And uh, so I, I learned early that there's that if you have a systematic plan, everyone wins because not only does do you win because over time you're less annoyed <laughs> as a as a adult, but the kid wins because they learn how to behave in a way that they get their needs met and they have a better time. I would see kids have they'd go through a struggle period. My mom would have to do some things, but eventually the kids would show up and they would just, their parents would walk out the door and the kids would just light up and they would have this great time you know, being harmonious with the other kids. And, and, uh, so everyone wins when, when this is pulled off well. Yeah. It sounds like you're talking about something called behavioral contrast where you'll get great, like your mom would get great results 
in her daycare. But then as soon as the parents showed up, it would be a different story or vice versa. And that's something that we have to work to work on a lot in ABA therapy, because if we can teach a child to comply and, and listen well and um, engage in the behaviors that we want them to, you know, like putting on their shoes when they're asked or drinking out of an open face cup or, or whatever the behaviors are, they, they might be able to do that with the therapist. But if they can't generalize those skills to their parents, then that's a problem. So we work hard to make sure that not only do the, are the skills learned, but we make sure that behavioral contrast doesn't occur where it'll occur with one parent and not another, with the therapist and not the parents, with the parents and not the therapist, that type of thing. Yeah. So to conclude, I will say that it makes me sad that people in your profession are burning out and dropping out because you're saints, you're, you're, you're uh, fighting the good fight and you're doing such great work and you're helping people and they uh, should be paid more. The world would be a better place if all the helpers were paid more. Yeah. And if uh, there were, uh, and if you're paid more, then maybe you don't have to work quite as, as much. You can take a little bit more time to breathe in between clients or I don't know something along those lines so that people it's just sad it saddens me that you're saying that you know that burnout is a known phenomenon and and it doesn't surprise me there's certain sectors of our field that there's higher rates of burnout and and they're often the places where the most need is needed (laughs) And, and so that that you know, that makes me sad for everyone. And if our political system were different and if our society was different, we would be different and we would have uh, more money for this sort of thing to help. And it's and it's such a huge can make such a huge difference in people's lives. Um, you know, people will go from complete dysfunction to complete function <laughs> And over the span of a couple of years, and it's it's a beautiful thing to witness, and everyone is just so happy about it, right? Yeah. And everyone wins, in, including, frankly, the taxpayer, because if you have a completely dependent person who is 30 years old, well, guess what? There's going to be a lot of tax dollars spent on trying to manage that person you have to have some you have to pay for someone to be there all the time or you have to institutionalize them or you have to have eyes on them often you have to feed them whereas if they are allowed to develop behaviors early in life that uh, allow them to get what they need and to ask for things and to learn more easily and to uh, function in the world then not only are they suffering less? And not only are their family suffering less, but I, but actually the taxpayer doesn't have to pay as much, which is just another reason why our society is a little silly when it comes to spending money. Well, thanks for joining me, Elizabeth. It's been enlightening. Uh, I've, yeah. learned, I've learned a lot from what you're talking about. I'm, I'm guessing the listeners have as well. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, everyone out there. Please take care of yourself and try not to burn out because you deserve it.